Hi, my name is Alex Cameron, and you have found the Decarb Connect podcast. Our mission is to have a look at how we can accelerate industrial decarbonisation. We're going to do this by bringing together stories, evidence, and project updates from across the hard to abate sectors. These are companies that are already pursuing decarbonisation, trialling early stage demos, pilots, and establishing the strategies that are going to help us achieve net zero 2050. Lots of tough budgets, plenty of tough decisions, but also plenty of evidence around what is already possible. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, today I am very pleased to be interviewing Anaruda Sharma, who is the CEO of Carbon Clean Solutions. Having just said your name, perhaps you could introduce yourself with a little background on you know, what you're doing and, um, and then we'll go from there. Alex, thank you very much. Uh, great to be here. Um, thank you for inviting me uh, in this very interesting series that you're, uh, that you're running. I am co-founder and CEO of Carbon Clean Solutions, a company based here in London, focused on delivering uh, breakthrough technology for carbon dioxide capture, which is essentially a concept where you remove the carbon dioxide, uh, main cause of global warming, you remove it from the smokestack of power plants, chemical plants, steel plants, and other industrial units. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit, um, a little later on in the conversation about your recent funding round and also some of the projects and uh, learnings from those projects that you have been developing. But let, let's start with something a bit different. So we, um, when you and I first talked about having this conversation, one of the things that uh, came up was, I guess, you know, when you read around the industry, you look at trade journals, you look at the FT, whatever publication uh, you're looking at, there's a real mixture of optimism, pessimism, confidence, and then a whole load of people are just not sure what they're doing. And I was interested in your view on this. You know, you're working with industrials who are getting on with decarbonization projects. And I just interested in your view on what is needed from these kinds of companies in the hard to abate sectors to be able to achieve net zero 2050. What, what do you see as the sort of hallmarks of those companies that are really going to be able to, to make that work? Alec, I, uh, I think this is a great opportunity. Um, you know, climate change is real. It's a real threat that all of us are facing. And I think uh, the opportunity to decarbonize assets to approach circular economy is real. And it's going to be one of the biggest opportunities that uh, we're going to face as we move towards, or as we go towards uh, net zero 2050. My personal view is companies must be uh, very pragmatic in their approach, and they should put an actionable plan that looks at short, medium, and the long term we know for a fact that renewable energy in the long run is going to provide 100% of our energy and uh, consumption needs. There's no doubt about that. It's going to happen. But I think in the short to medium term, while we're switching away from fossil heavy industry and fossil heavy use all the way to uh, renewable uh, infrastructure, I think there is a space and there is a need for thinking about decarbonization, how to facilitate this transition very quickly and very smoothly, very efficiently. I think new technologies like carbon capture, utilization storage, um, or in short, we can also call it as CCUS, have a very crucial role here to play in helping cut the emissions, specifically from hard to abate industries like steel, uh, cement, refining, uh, and base incineration. And all these industries, uh, the reason they're called hard to abate is because you, you, know, you can't just switch them off tomorrow and say, okay, there are no more pseudo emissions. 
we, we will need these industries for some time to come until um, the time we find better and more sustainable ways of doing things or change our lives completely. These industries are going to, to stay with us. So I think there is definitely a need for a plan of decarbonizing uh, these industries and these companies in a sustainable yet in a profitable way. Out of interest, when you typically at the point that you're engaging with an industrial, how many, what would you say the proportion is of people that you speak to that, that have that plan? Like, do most people have it by the time they interact with carbon clean solutions or are you kind of part of that early stage thinking that they're going through? Well, I would say it's very much the latter. We are very much the uh, part of early stage thinking helping these companies come up with the first plan, um, say, which they can take to the, to the management of these boards. Um, I would say from an industrial decarbonization perspective, we are very much in early days of plans or early days of thinking here. Uh, you can very much compare this to 2006, 2007 for renewable energy. You know, people were just thinking about it. People were getting excited. They were thinking about making a switch to 100% renewable, partial renewable. Uh, and we are at just at the cusp of that fast growth in terms of reducing carbon emissions and decarbonizing these huge industrial assets out there. Is is the impediment the kind of the barrier? Is it one of is it like a kind of a confidence issue, or is it a lack of information, or is it something way more pragmatic than that? What's your sense of what's holding up some of the bigger companies from setting these sorts of plans? I think it's a, it's a mix of. Uh, mix of a few things. One is while we know the end goal, which is decarbonization by 2050 or net zero by 2050, I think the path to that net goal is not very clear. Everyone is trying to work very hard to figure out what is that path they can take to 2050 and get to that decarbonization goal. Um, so I guess that's one challenge. The second challenge people are trying to face and they're trying to overcome is uh, how do you create value in this whole process? You know, Decarbonization in inevitably will mean that we have to move away from fossil uh, fuels uh, or fossil fuel operations, fossil fuel heavy operations. We'll have to move away from them completely in many cases. Uh, this is a potential of uh, 100% uh, change for a lot of the companies and their ways of operation today. So I think people are also trying to figure out what's the best, most sustainable, profitable uh, and valuable way of getting there to that next uh, next target, that's incremental target that will get them to net zero by 2050. I think the third thing is just the uh, lack of right options uh, or availability of the right technology. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it does seem like the options those were existing today were very, very expensive out there and people were, were waiting for something new to come up. So I guess, and that's really where our company comes, comes into play and say that, look, we've got this, uh, breakthrough technology and we can help you reduce cost really, really by quite a lot and get to that decarbonization path quite cheaply and cost, cost, uh, quite, quite cost effectively. Yeah, it's an interesting one that I know that during a lot of the kind of background conversations I've been having across the industry, that that whole thing of obviously cost has come up uh, so many times and there's a real sense that some people are waiting for the incentives or the taxation environments change. Some people are waiting for the opportunity perhaps to join what seem like, you know, those winning collaboration projects where people can share costs, but it's definitely, definitely a factor that's causing people to wait. But that point about technology sort of leads me to another point. I'm, you know, there, there is so much coming up at the moment, so many different types of, let alone decarbonization technology, there's so much, even in carbon capture and in specific kind of the actual kind of chemical or engineering solutions that are possible. 
I'm sort of interested in what what's emerging that interests you. And then on the other side of that question, what, what do you think industrial should, could do or should do to get ready for that kind of next opportunity? Uh, very good question, Alex. I think the options or the technology space as far as industrial decarbonization, carbon capture, utilization, storage, uh, energy transition, I think that the whole technology space is changing very, very rapidly and significantly. Every day there are new projects that are being launched and bolder projects, bolder efforts being put together to uh, get to very low cost of carbon capture or decarbonizing industrial assets. A lot is going on. From an overall technology landscape uh, in, in terms of carbon capture utilization, storage, uh, you, you have, you've got a couple of options that are going on there. You've got um, systems, those are very well proven, uh, traditional systems, then you've got uh, completely breakthrough next generation systems, and then you've got out-of-the-box ideas uh, like um, directly capture capturing CO2 from air. Our company is very much focused on um, next generation breakthrough technology, so that middle category, that is looking at utilizing the experience people have already had with capturing carbon dioxide. I mean, all in the industry, they've been doing it for, uh, for 50 years in the US now. So our technology looks at utilizing what has already been operating, but then completely changing it radically so that the equipment sizes, the costing of carbon capture, uh, could go down quite significantly. And to give you an idea, you mentioned a good point about taxation and the value and how this all, all this work. Our own internal target is to get to a less than 30 US dollar per ton cost of carbon capture. We believe if we can get to that number and take our customers to go to that number, then you can quite well offset your cost of capture versus the carbon credit or the tax that you're paying. It could actually become very. It could very well become a value, net value generating or net profitable solution because instead of paying taxes, which is a yearly cost, you're now decarbonizing your site and you're doing much more uh, good to the environment. Have you? I mean, that's, that's that. I mean, based on that kind of thirty dollars per ton, that obviously would fit within a, a range of cost that I think any company would say was well worth exploring and are very different from what most people are assuming their budgets will need to be today. What What's your best guess? And I understand it's a guess because we're all kind of early stage in this journey. What's your sense of the timeline to that sort of pricing? Uh, again, very good question, Alex. So I think uh, with any technology, you know, you have to scale this up to a certain size to be able to enjoy the full benefit of the, uh, of what the technology has to offer. Um, I would say we, uh, we are very much in the early demonstration phase. Uh, oh. Currently two plants running, one in the UK and one in the US, um, where we are demonstrating this live to uh, customers, to potential partners. The idea of the timeline that we are pursuing is within next 18 to 30 months, we should be able to get to a, a mid-sized commercial unit. And when I say mid-sized commercial unit, it's about 100,000 tons per year of CO2 capture. In industrial sense, this will allow most of the industrial companies we work with, this will allow them to reduce um, anywhere between 10% to 25% of their carbon emission. So what we want to do is within the next 18 months to 30 months, to showcase that it is possible to decarbonize 10 to 25% of a large operating industrial asset with an average price of about 30 US dollars per ton. And we believe that will be a very good incremental step um, if we can get there in the next uh, 18 to 30 months. That's interesting because I know, again, when we when we first had a chat about doing this podcast together, uh, one of your points was that there is an opportunity here for people not to have to wait for some 
big, dramatic, massive step forward, but to actually take these incremental gains and build and scale. So that idea of, you know, maybe it's 10% to begin with or more is, is really, I think that's pretty, that's interesting to me. And I wondered what, what do you think, yeah, what does that mean in practice for an industrial? What, why would that be important for them? What's your, yeah, tell, tell me a bit more about that view. So, you know, any industrial site, they have actually optimized their processes, the, the ways of working and their operations uh, over a very long period of time. Uh, introduction of any new system or unit on site uh, needs to be perfected because all these units, they, they are like kind of master on unit. I mean, a waste incineration plant or a steel plant or a cement plant, you're probably looking to run it 96% of the time. So you need a very high level of uptime. I think a 10% decarbonization target to start with for all these industrial sites will allow them to learn much more about the technology um, that can help them capture carbon dioxide. But more importantly, it will also help them uh, learn more about how does this unit interact with their existing plant, how much space is required, what kind of manpower is required. And they can then build all those protocols in before they go, go and scale up to the next level, which could be 50% decarbonization or a 75% or 100% decarbonization. So I think it's a very good 10% decarbonization target is a very good stepping stone um, so that you can, at a reasonably commercial scale, decarbonize that, uh, showcase that you can decarbonize the plant very sustainably and cost effectively. But at the same point of time, train your workforce on this new plant, this new system that will be built on site. So that is the um, operation side and the technology side of things. There is a very important angle to this 10% target as well. And that's the commercial side of how does this whole decarbonization work and how, how, how does it become sustainable? You know, the point around um, carbon capture utilization and storage is to capture the CO2 and ideally use it to produce another product that you can sell or storage, uh, storage uh, offshore. Now, if you think about the new chain, if you if you are if you're a refinery um, today, you know you're, you're going about your daily business, you're producing a product. Uh, if you have to capture carbon dioxide and produce a new product out of it, you also have to evaluate what business models will work. You need to get potentially get into new supply chains, potentially new markets. So, at ten percent, uh, all these industrial companies would also start thinking about. If they go into decarbonization, what other supplemental value chains they can diversify in and make this whole decarbonization effort sustainable and profitable? So, um, yeah, this this whole idea of getting a company to make kind of these step changes moving forward incrementally is, is really interesting to me, not least because one of the conversations that's come up a couple of times with people I've spoken to is, you know, however much a board or the kind of leadership are built in, at the end of the day, you still have to get the plant director, the workforce really engaged in this. Otherwise, early stage projects either won't get an easy sign off or, you know, the, the whole process of running them can become more challenging. And I was just interested in how are you... Well, have you experienced any of those kind of challenges or have you found that actually everyone that you connect with within that uh, field of stakeholders is, is fully engaged? I don't know, just if you can expand a bit on who is it that you typically engage with and, and the kind of how you're making it work with them, that would be helpful. So I would say that look, most of these industrial processes they have, uh, most of the industrial sites we work with, they have processes set. Uh, you need to give them enough comfort that whatever you're doing is actually worth their time and effort and money. But once you're over that first hump, then most of the sites and customers that I've ever engaged with are actually very, uh, very involved with this. 
I think climate change is one of those issues that's that's close to everyone because it's it's also an issue that's uh, that's very close to the younger generation. You know, when these fund managers, fund directors, when they go home, they've got kids. The kids will always come back and ask, "What are you doing to secure my future as far as uh, climate change is concerned, or the disastrous impact of climate change is concerned?" So I think people are actually uh, quite aware and they engage once again about that for the first time. I guess a couple of examples that I could probably give you here. Um, our customer base is quite diverse. So we've got steel plants, power plants, chemical plants, refineries, uh, cement plants, uh, waste incineration units who are working with us to uh, get to a place where they can uh, start decarbonizing their units, get to that first stepping stone. A uh, couple of examples is, uh, for example, our partnership with uh, Liquid Wind, which is a project uh, based in Sweden. Very interesting project. There's a local refinery. Uh, there's a local paper, paper and pulp mill. The idea is to capture the carbon dioxide um, from these two assets, mix it with hydrogen produced from offshore wind, uh, offshore wind energy, and again use offshore wind energy to produce uh, sustainable fuel for shipping industry. Shipping industry is one of the most difficult industries to decarbonize. I mean, we don't have electric ships now. There is a discussion around that, but I think it's still it's still far. So this is a very interesting project where you are taking literally the waste of two assets or two plants and converting it into a sustainable fuel. A second example I can give is from India, uh, Dalmia Cement. It's one of the largest cement, cement producer in India. They have announced a target to get to uh, net zero by 2040. So really aggressive in their thinking and, their, um, and in their actions. We have signed a partnership with them to help them decarbonize one of their large plants to capture the CO2 and convert into products that they can then sell into the market. So again, they're doing a lot of work on mapping what these supply chains are, what these products could potentially be used for, how they will be sold, who will use it, what's the circular economy infrastructure that need to be built. But again, I'm quite proud of our partnership with uh, Dalbis Events, uh, in this case, in, uh, in, in India. The, the way that collaborations form as it as a company progresses through uh, scale, you know, obviously that changes how you assess the beginning of a relationship, how you assess whether it's going to be a good collaboration. So, what do you now consider to be the kind of hallmarks of a great collaboration? One that's going to work for you, but also is going to work for the the partner involved as well. I think there are three key ingredients as far as a great collaboration is concerned. Uh, first one is a common ambition goal. Both partners must be absolutely clear on that one common target they want to get to. So I think that's absolutely key. Um, second is um, the uh, openness and transparency. Both partners must be absolutely open and transparent about what do they have and you know, how, what can they bring on the table to, to get to that end goal and you know, succeed. And I would say the third thing that's also super important, especially if you're working with large partners, is engagement from the very top. You know, you may be able to excite people on the ground, uh, maybe able to excite people on the technical roles, especially the innovation is concerned. But I think an excitement at the very top level of two partners uh, really, really uh, energizes the people who are working on the partnership. So let's put you in different shoes. You're now in the shoes of being a CEO or CTO of one of the big industrials. Tell me a bit about what you, what would you do to ensure a real chance at kind of delivering scalable decarbonization. Oh, okay. Um, this is this is a lot of times, you know, my counterparts would ask me the question, the uh, CEO of a large company. Um, I think a couple of things um, that I would do or I would 
potentially try to do and motivate my team to do, the first thing is let's have a plan. Um, you know, getting to 2015 at zero, that's a long-term target, but we definitely need to have milestones, um, basically like the short-term, medium-term, uh, and then that long-term milestone. So let's, let's first have the plan. Uh, planning is the absolute key. And second is, I would emphasize and understand the uh, rollout plan. Uh, how do we get to that first milestone that tangibly proves that application of a technology or an option is absolutely the way to go? So 10% markets, generally what I've learned from my conversation with other CEOs or senior management of these companies, uh, they would say, well, actually, let's see if we can do this for 10% of our operating capacity. And if yes, we can do that successfully, it gives us a very good stepping stone to go up. The third thing I would do is I would map the business model. You know, carbon dioxide capture, CCUS, energy transition. It's going to potentially open up a lot more business model and an opportunity to produce a lot more products out of that. Um, so it's quite important for the leaders to understand what that new business model is going to look like, what the, that new way of doing business is going to look like, and really get a grip on that. So I guess those are the three things I would focus on if I were running a large corporation. That last one. Um, is interesting. I, and I know a lot of people have questions like, okay, we capture all this. What do we do with it? How do we build that into a business model that we can develop for ourselves? I think, I think those are really, really useful. So let's, let's flip it around the other way. If you um, were talking to a brand new startup or a company that's only just starting to look at transfer of technology out of an academic environment, perhaps, what's the best advice that you, you would give them? So Anaruda, however many years ago, what do you wish you could tell him then that would have helped him progress? Product market fit. I think that's one of the most uh, undervalued um, you know, options or things the entrepreneurs look at when they're starting a, a new company or a new business. Uh, they're quite excited about technology, and I come from a technology background as well, and so is my co-founder. And they're quite excited about technology, but what we didn't quite understand at that point of time is What's the product market fit? Where is the demand? Where does this fit with our customers? So, um, you know, if you look at uh, Silicon Valley, some of the stats coming out, about 90% of the companies, uh, early stage companies do fail because there is no demand for the product. They didn't map the product market fit well enough when they got out there and started the organization. Okay, so you've already mentioned, and as I say, congratulations on this amazing funding that you've secured for some pretty big heavy hitters across a range of sectors, actually, not, all, not, not only in oil and gas, but also um, other sources as well. So tell us a bit about what, what do you see that enabling you to do? Where do you hope to, to see Carbon Clean go next? We will be using the funds to grow the team quite substantially. You know, we are a small team currently spread based here in, uh, some of us are here in London, a couple of us are in the US, and a couple of us are in, the, uh, are in India. We are now looking to expand the team quite significantly so that we can deliver on the uh, product demand that's coming to us. Uh, we're seeing some of the sectors like uh, steel, cement, uh, waste management, uh, refining and petrochemicals are very interested in progressing towards uh, CCUS, carbon capture utilization storage. So they will be very much focused on delivering a product for um, our customers in, all the, in, in, in this space. Despite the current uh, economic circumstances, we've seen numerous businesses coming to us and asking us for either for advice or product um, that could help them decarbonize their, their, their existing sites. Well, I think what we want to do is we want to have enough capacity that could help all these companies who are coming to us 
they are very much thinking about net zero. They are very much uh, thinking about what next for them. Um, I think the crisis, the current pandemic has opened up certain opportunities for these operating uh, industrial sites as well. So we'll be very much focused on now commercializing the technology, growing the team, uh, getting the word out there and delivering more and more projects as we go forward. Oh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting few months, I think. My last question is just really to kind of round back to the beginning about um, how you came into decarbonisation at all. This is maybe, I guess it's a personal interest of mine because I, I sort of came into this myself, like, assuming that everybody had been an oil and gas engineer or something like that. I don't know. But tell me a little about how did you find yourself working on a, a decarbonisation technology project? So it actually goes back um, even before I was born. Um, There's a bit of a story. I come from a um, very small town in India called Bhopal. It's one of the towns famous for all reasons. You know, the world's largest industrial gas leakage yeah. happened in that town. On the, on the day the industrial disaster happened, four days after that, my parents were to get married. Um, and as you know, yeah, you may probably know about Indian weddings, you know, the whole family tree comes up and, and anything less than a thousand people is just not a wedding. Um, so we had everyone um, from, our, from our family, you know, even distant relatives in uh, Popal at that point in time. So this industrial, when this industrial disaster struck, it actually literally struck everyone in the family. Everyone uh, got affected because of this, uh, this gas leakage. And I grew up with um, this story about the industrial disaster and what happened and impacting people, different, uh, different symptoms they had. And all it had that thing in, sort of put a seed in my head that if we do not control uh, the industrial processes, uh, something like this could happen uh, again or could happen anytime. I feel the same way about climate change. You know, we are using whatever fossil fuels we can produce today, we have everything else which is CO2 we can, it's going up all the time. And if you can't control that, if you don't stop it, especially now, dramatically stop it, uh, we'll get to a position where the effects of climate change will affect and will impact all of us really, really, really badly. So that's the genesis of how I got interested in uh, decarbonization and climate change. Back in 2005, 2006, when I was at the university, I studied at Indian Institute of Technology in India, um, I was involved uh, a bit in policy advocacy um, um, on climate change. So I was a member of uh, Indian Youth Climate Network, really youngsters focused on uh, pushing the government to do something tangible, even went to represent uh, the Indian Youth Climate Network um, in Copenhagen, climate change conference in Copenhagen. But when I came back from there, I really realized that uh, the power of change could potentially be brought in by impact of technology. It's not like people don't want to do anything. It's just that it's so expensive to make it work today. So that, that's really where I uh, started a discussion with a good friend of mine, uh, Pradeep, who is uh, my co-founder and is our CTO. You know, we used to live next to each other. We were neighbors in the, in the, uh, in the hostels um, at the university. We started talking and I realized Pradeep was actually working on a potential solution uh, that could reduce the cost of pseudo uh, capture very significantly. Um, I asked him, literally on a casual conversation, I asked him who is doing it in India, and he said no one, and I said, well, why do we do it? So 12th October 2009, that was the genesis of Carbon Solutions at uh, Indian Institute of Technology. We started from there. So we suddenly our research got recognized in 2012. The British government gave us uh, six, uh, £4 million, $6 million uh, that allowed us to come to the UK 
and collaborate, truly collaborate with world-leading universities like uh, Indian College, University of Leeds, University of Sheffield, to take the technology really from the idea, initial idea, to all the way to um, semi-commercialization phase. So that's just the story um, about Carbon Clean Solutions. Uh, we commercialized the product in 2016, started building plants. Uh, we are now operational at 40 plus units in uh, Europe and in India. And we've recently raised this funding, quite excited about how do we go from these 40 demonstration slash commercial plan all the way up to our vision, which is helping industrial companies reduce a billion tons of CO2 per year. I really, I love that story of kind of those multiple influences um, coming in behind your decision to get involved with your friend and, and co-founder. That's really interesting. One of, one of the things that I really love about the kind of conversations I've been having, not just through the podcast, but in general, is the variety of backgrounds and drivers for people wanting to do what they're doing here. And some of it is I'm an engineer and I love the technical challenge, but I've also spoken to people like you who have more of a kind of a personal drive that's also got them where they are or perhaps uh in fact you mentioned you mentioned it earlier that sometimes it's even people's families or or other things that can be the driver for them wanting to to make these changes so there's there's some brilliant human stories that underpin quite a lot of the technical and uh, project advances that we're seeing which is great well um Thank you. Thank you for taking some time to talk with us. I'm sure that just two weeks after closing a series of funding, there's many things that your team wishes you were doing right now. So I really appreciate the time that you've taken just to talk to us a bit about the business and also some of your thoughts. Um, any final comments from you? Well, I mean, I, I, I would probably conclude by saying, Alex, the work you're doing is really great work you know, bringing these podcasts out, these stories out, it's really important to spread the message and um, to educate the people of what's out there, what's happening, what are, their, uh, what are their options today. You know, there's, I talk to so many industrial companies who come to us, they just don't know how to deal with that. You know, they understand and they know they have to do something quickly and some, they, they potentially want to do something quickly as well, but they just don't know what's happening. So I think what you're doing here is really good and a really great platform to bring all this knowledge together um, for people to access and learn from it. So kudos, great work. Thank you. Well, and thank you again for taking part. If you've enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share it. If you would like to be involved in a future podcast, get in touch with me at ac at decarbconnect.com or you can get in touch through our website, decarbconnect.com, which is also where we will be posting the podcasts as we release them. Bye for now.